The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Is it possible that jogging might be good for your knees, that stretching might be bad prior to exercise, ibuprofen may actually increase joint inflammation, and cortisone shots lower your chance of a full recovery from injury? Today we talk with New York Times fitness columnist Gretchen Reynolds about the latest surprising research on exercise. Reynolds is an award-winning journalist who has written for the New York Times Magazine, Oprah Magazine, Outside, AARP Magazine, and Popular Science, among others. She also writes the Phys Ed column in the Science Times section of the New York Times. And Gretchen Reynolds is here today to talk about her new book, The First 20 Minutes, Surprising Science Reveals How We Can Exercise Better, Train Smarter, Live Longer. Welcome to Health Watch, Gretchen Reynolds. Thank you very much for having me. This was definitely my uh, favorite health read of the year so far. I was uh, very interested to talk to you today. So maybe you can orient our our listeners to what you mean by the title, The First 20 Minutes. Well, The First 20 Minutes is a reference to essentially how much activity, physical activity, anyone needs in order to be healthy. And what they have found, what large-scale studies have found is that if someone is really sedentary, if they essentially spend most of their time sitting, and that's a lot of Americans, about a third of Americans get zero exercise at all. So if that person gets up off the couch and moves around for 20 minutes, they start getting enormous physical health benefits. They start immediately reducing the risk for diabetes, for heart disease, even it appears for dementia. And that happens with a very small amount of activity, just 20 minutes of moving. And if you can keep doing that almost every day, you don't even have to do 20 minutes altogether. Do two 10-minute sections of just walking. Um, Even standing up can make a huge difference in someone's health and even in their lifespan. So uh, that was interesting. You mentioned that people can actually split up the amount of um, exercise they do. So is it the same if you do two 10-minute sections of exercise in a day as one 20-minute section? The science appears very persuasive that it is, and that's particularly if what you are looking for is improved health. And that's a different goal than improved fitness. If, if you want to be faster, if you want to be able to run longer, that's a different goal than just having a healthier body, having less risk of the big diseases, diabetes, health disease, or um, heart disease, dementia. Those, it appears you can reduce your risk by at least 20% by just walking about 20 to 30 minutes a day and you don't have to do it in one segment. They've done a number of studies that have shown you get the same reduction in disease risk if you walk five minutes six times a day, if you walk 10 minutes three times a day, if you garden for 10 minutes three times a day. As long as you are actually moving in some way, it appears that you can reduce the risk pretty substantially. 
And if you were to exercise, say, 40 minutes or 60 minutes a day, it's the first 20 minutes that are giving you the majority, and then you're getting less health benefits from the second 20 and the third 20 minutes? Yes, which is not to say don't do not do it. I, I'm, I'm a big believer in running. I, I run, and you will continue to get health and fitness benefits after the first 20 to 30 minutes, but they do plateau pretty substantially. And there is a bell-shaped curve, it appears, to exercise, where after a certain point, and that may be different for everyone, although most physiologists peg it at about somewhere between 60 and 90 minutes of vigorous exercise a day, you start to potentially have the, the curve of benefits go down. You have an increased risk of injury. You have an increased risk possibly of some issues with muscles, including your heart. So it seems that the best advice is make sure you're moving. If you love running, run for an hour. Then start asking yourself if you really need to be doing more than that. Sure. Uh, one of the interesting things in the book was uh, the research on humans versus other mammals. And we seem to be the, I don't know if we're the only one, but certainly one of the only mammals where walking is the most efficient movement Can you versus running. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. It's actually, they've done some really interesting studies where they have brought in some of the, the other mammals that are very good runners. And they bring them into the lab and they actually put... Um, oxygen masks on them and have them walk or run on a treadmill. And then they can get a, a measure of how efficiently the animal moves. That means how much energy is required to move the, the, the animal's body through space. And what they have found is that many mammals are really efficient at running, and humans are not. We are much more efficient at actually walking. We use less energy. We can keep it up for a really long period of time. We can sprint, but we can't sprint very long, and we don't sprint nearly as fast as most other big mammals do. So we seem to be built really for walking. We're good at it. We don't generally get hurt doing it. And if you're in shape at all, you can walk all day without any trouble. But despite despite the fact that we seem to be well-suited for walking, there is some research to show that running might actually be preventative for knee injuries rather than a, a cause of knee injuries. Yes, and, and the same would be true for walking. There's a very, very deeply entrenched myth that if you run a lot, you're going to ruin your knees. And I, I've personally been a runner for, oh, 30 years now, and people are constantly telling me that I am going to ruin my knees. And the evidence is clear that that is not true. If you have a healthy knee to start with, if you've ever hurt your knee, if, if you played soccer in high school and you tore your ACL or you're a skier and you hurt your knee at some point, then that knee isn't stable anymore. And then you probably need to see a good orthopedic surgeon about whether running at if you've had a knee injury, whether running is a good idea. If you haven't had a past knee injury, it appears that running does, in fact, make knees healthier. 
It seems to stimulate the cells in your cartilage to divide more often, to build more cartilage, to build healthier cartilage. And they have done studies on 90-year-old runners and found that they had healthier knees than 80-year-old non-runners. That's fascinating. Um, one one of the one of the other great sections of the the first twenty minutes was around the science of aging, and I love the the thought that movement is potentially the best way to ameliorate the effects of aging. I, you even quote a scientist in in that section that says that a lot of the things we normally were associating with aging may actually have to do with inactivity and not with the aging process itself. Uh, can you expand a little on that one? It's one of the things that keeps me moving. It seems really clear that a lot of the things that, until very recently, people thought were inevitable with age, and and that includes things like losing your muscle mass, which tends to make you then very frail, things like uh, losing your ability to remember things, a number of things that we really did think, also losing um, bone mass. People thought that there was nothing you could do about that, that if you lived to be a certain age, you were going to be frail. Well, they have found by following people who are active, um, particularly masters athletes, that very little of those effects occur if you remain really physically active. You will maintain, you will still lose some muscle mass. You will lose far less than most people. Your muscle will be have much less fat in it, so it will be stronger. You do not lose bone nearly as fast if you just walk. It doesn't have to be marathon running. Just walking, cycling, almost any activity seems to improve bone mass. You will not lose it as quickly. And they found that even at a cellular level, it changes the health of your cells. They divide better. They're biologically younger if you have been physically active for most of your life. And, and that's just a profound difference in what we think the human body is capable of. We're talking today with New York Times columnist Gretchen Reynolds about her book, The First 20 Minutes, Surprising Science Reveals How We Can Exercise Better, Train Smarter, Live Longer. If you'd like to join the conversation on Health Watch, the number is 503-231-8187. It was very fascinating to continue on the idea of aging and, and movement as being the best preventative, that aerobic fitness is the best predictor for longevity and more so than potentially whether you smoke, whether you're overweight, and what your diet is. That's, that's quite fascinating and uh, uh, revolutionary, actually. It is, although if you think about it, in some ways it's not surprising because they have found that the human genome seems to have been set about, oh, back in the Paleolithic age, when we were hunter-gatherers and had to move. And we, if we didn't move, we either didn't eat or, or we got eaten. So the human body was built back then to move. If you don't move, so many things go wrong inside physiologically. If you do move, it appears that the entire, your genome, every system in your body works correctly. So you do have much less risk of all the diseases of modern living, including obesity, including diabetes. And so it makes sense 
in that context that activity would increase lifespan, which it does. It appears to increase by about 20% if you are just physically active 30 minutes most days of the week. And that's, I mean, that, that can be six to seven years for a man, five to six years for a woman, just from a very moderate amount of physical activity. Can you parse out for us the difference between being fit and being the proper weight? Because I know that we, um, you can be larger and be fit, which I would assume would give you a longevity uh, advantage, and you could be skinnier and be unhealthy. Yes, there's a whole body of science that looks at the, the issue of being fit and fat, um, and it does appear very clearly that if you are going to be overweight, if you can be physically fit, you do have a, a much greater um, opportunity for living longer and living healthier. And what that means is fatness basically looks at how much fat is in your body. They, they look at body mass index and tell you you have, you know, you're overweight according to these categories of how much you should weigh. Fitness is a completely separate category, and it looks at how well your heart and lungs work, how well they deliver fuel and oxygen to your muscles. If you are physically fit, and you can measure that by doing something like going out and walking for a mile, if you can do that in under about 10 minutes for a man and 11 minutes for a woman, you're generally considered physically fit. In that case, even if you're somewhat overweight, you are much better off, actually, than someone who is really thin and not physically fit. And that may sound surprising, but the science is really persuasive that physical fitness is really important for the human body. And it also will have some translation into what happens in our brain, not just in our muscles. Oh, the, the effects on the brain are probably the most wide-ranging of anything that we're finding out. It wasn't that long ago that all of us were taught that we were born with a certain number of brain cells and would never have more. They actually still teach that in some schools, I know, and it demonstrably is not true. The human brain keeps producing brain cells throughout your lifespan, but if you exercise, you'll double or triple the number of new brain cells that you create. And most of them are created in the part of the brain that deals with memory and learning. If you don't exercise, and, and ex by exercise that means walking. If you just walk between 30 minutes or so most days of the week, you do not get the same amount of shrinkage in the brain's memory center that someone who is inactive gets. You will build a lot more new brain cells there. And they have found that people who exercise, as I said, a very small amount, um, have a, a much larger memory center than people who are completely inactive. Let's take our first caller. Um, welcome to Health Watch on the air with Gretchen Reynolds. Hello? Hello, Joanne. You're on the air with Gretchen Reynolds. Oh, okay. I, uh, yes, I, um, for, for some years I've been wondering about something. I see these people running and uh, doing their special walking right at or on very congested traffic areas, and I'm thinking that they're taking in 
all this pollution from the vehicles and that. So I will get off the air and listen to your response, okay? Great. Sure. So, so Gretchen, is, is the trade-off there around exposure to air pollution versus the benefits of exercise? How does that pan out? Well, it, if there is any way at all that you can um, exercise in an area where there's not a lot of pollution, that's definitely preferable. Because there have been some studies done, with, um, particularly with runners and serious runners, where they have found that running for long periods of time in an area where you're getting a lot of diesel fuel, which would be most major highways, does seem to contribute a little bit to the development of heart disease and some lung problems. Again, it's slight. The benefits of exercise seem to generally outweigh the risks of being in a polluted area. Um, If that's the only place you can exercise, then do it. If there is any way to move off a really congested street, even go into a gym, it's probably a good idea if possible. And and you have a section in, in the first 20 minutes that talks about a way you could exercise where you actually uh, exercise for far fewer minutes per day and per week, but you get potentially the same health benefits. What what that sounds too good to be true. Tell us the research on that. It, it, it's it is actually very compelling research. It's looking at the issue of what they call high intensity interval training, and this is basically oriented towards someone who wants to get a really good workout completed in a very short period of time. And this is for someone who wants either to improve their health or to become more fit, to become faster, stronger. And what they have found, and this is particularly a group up in Canada have looked at this a lot, is that if you work really hard for a minute, and that means you run hard, swim hard, cycle hard, and be honest with yourself, Hard means it's tough to breathe, it's somewhat unpleasant, you're well outside of your comfort zone. Do that for one minute, then go easy for a minute. Do that again 10 times total. For That, that would be 20 minutes of actual exercise with a brief warm-up, brief cool-down. So at most 30 minutes of exercise, they have found you tend to get all the physiological and health benefits of an hour to 90 minutes of longer continuous exercise. So you can get a really potent amount of exercise in a very brief period of time if you make yourself work a little bit harder than you might normally. Yeah, that's really interesting. So could somebody potentially, if they wanted to get their 20-minute benefit of gradual exercise in five minutes or in seven minutes? Could they do a really short interval section in a day and call that good for their 20 minutes? It appears, yes. They did some very interesting work with older people in Japan where they had them doing essentially intervals while walking. So they walked quickly or briskly, as they usually say in the scientific literature, for one minute and easier for another minute, and they did that for five, five uh, repetitions. So it was actually 10 minutes total, and they got all the benefits of more than 30 minutes of just sort of more gentle walking. 
So you definitely can get a lot of health benefits from a very concentrated amount of exercise if you, with your doctor's permission, go hard at least some of the time. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today with New York Times columnist Gretchen Reynolds about her book, The First 20 Minutes, Surprising Science Reveals How We Can Exercise Better, Train Smarter, and Live Longer. My, well, my favorite part of the book is all of the different exercise myths that you dispel. Um, you know, I, was, uh, I, I ran competitively when I was younger, and I remember we used to go out for big meals of pasta before we would run, and uh, in carbo load, as they would call it. And apparently that doesn't really bear out as having any benefit. Can you, can you tell us about carbo loading? It's very hard for me to believe because I was brought up as a competitive runner also, and we, we all did go out and carbo load. Um, and what they have found in really looking at what happens when you carbo-load is that it appears that men do get some benefits in terms of if you eat a lot of pasta and you cut back significantly on the amount of exercise that you're doing, you will get some additional fuel packed into your cells, but you will also get a whole lot of additional water packed in with that fuel so you will come to the, the starting line, and this is really true for women, weighing probably more than you really want to weigh. So you then have to carry a lot of mass through that run, uh, which it undoes any benefits of having a little bit more fuel. So what appears to work best is good, healthy, sound nutrition and maybe reducing the amount of exercise that you're doing heading right into a race if you're a serious competitive racer. That will give you the same benefits as formal carbo-loading where you eat you know, three or four plates of pasta and can barely move the next day. Uh, well, another, another surprising thing was uh, around the research done on running shoes. I know when I was r- running more avidly that we would get evaluated to see whether we were pronators, whether we had high arch or low arch, and then you'd get more or less support in your shoe. And I love those studies where they random not, they would just randomly would give people a shoe rather than assign them their appropriate shoe, or they would give them the opposite shoe of what they should be wearing and then follow them for injury risk. And it seems to be that whole uh, scenario isn't based on science at all. No, it's not. Uh, it, it seems to have been based on marketing. Um, it, it, when they do actually give people shoes without, as you said, evaluating them, saying you need a quote-unquote motion control shoe, you need a heavy shoe, you need a light shoe. They just randomly gave people, primarily Army recruits um, who, who have no choice, they have to take the shoes they're given. They gave them a wide variety of shoes and had them run. And what they found was that it didn't matter. A certain number of people were going to get injured, and it didn't matter what shoe they wore, although it seems that the big, heavy motion control shoes do seem to lead to a lot more injuries than a lighter shoe. So I I think the big lesson from the studies they've done of people in running shoes is that it seems likely that most people are going to do better with a slightly lighter shoe than many of us were wearing a few years ago, because then your foot can respond a little better to the ground. 
And that seems to lessen the risk of getting injured. And, and speaking of getting injured, there's been research done on stretching and injury prevention and, and uh, with some surprising results as well. <laughs> yes, it's quite possibly the most controversial thing I've ever written about because people are very, very committed to their stretching routines. And again, most of us were taught back in PE that we had to stretch before exercise, that that's how you warm up, that you lay there, you sit down on the ground and you reach for your toes and you hold that pose for 30 seconds or so. And that is called static stretching. And when they actually put that to the test, they found that it did not reduce injury risk if people stretched. And it seems to actually set people up for doing less well in their upcoming exercise bout. It seems to actually make the brain think that you are about to rip that muscle, and it sends messages that actually tighten the muscle. And what they have found is that people's muscles actually respond less well after they've been static stretching than if they just warm up by doing, say, a little bit of light jogging if they're going to run, maybe hopping in place if they're going to be uh, playing basketball, if you actually warm up by getting your muscles warm instead of by stretching, it appears to be much better for performance and reduces injury risk. Yeah, that's fascinating and, of course, um, is probably shocking to a lot of our listeners today. Uh, another thing that was really surprising was the, the ways in which ibuprofen and cortisone shots, um, which are so widely used, um, can actually interfere with healing and with um, joint health in general. That was surprising to me because um, I've spent a lot of time around really very competitive athletes, and many of them take ibuprofen before every workout, just um, automatically because they think it will keep their muscles from getting sore. But when, again, when they actually, the scientists put it to the test, what they found was that ibuprofen actually blunts the ability of the muscles to repair themselves after you exercise, and it's a small effect, but it means that you get less of the training response that you want. I mean, part of what you're doing when you exercise fairly strenuously is to harm your muscles very slightly. They heal, and then they're stronger. That's the whole point of most exercise. If you take a lot of ibuprofen, especially if you take it prophylactically, just hoping to prevent muscle soreness, it does seem to lessen how well your muscles respond to exercise. They don't heal as quickly. They don't heal as well. You may actually wind up with muscles that are a little bit less strong than they would be, so you may wind up with more chance of injury, more chance of having the muscles hurt than if you didn't take ibuprofen. And something similar seems to be going on um, for many people who get cortisone shots. They did some really interesting studies with people who got the shots to deal with um, tennis elbow. It's a very common treatment. And they found very clearly that the cortisone shots seemed to lessen how well people healed and increase their chances of getting hurt um, again down the road. So it's really questionable whether either of those is advisable if you exercise regularly. 
I've always wondered about cortisone in the sense that um, when you apply it to topically, it thins the tissues of your skin. And I always wondered if you were to do multiple injections, if somehow it was weakening the structure, the tendons and ligaments of, of a joint. It, it appears that, yes, that certainly can happen, which is exactly the opposite of what you want it to be doing. Um, it also, the one thing cortisone is very good at is it is, it will reduce pain. But if you have pain, then there's something going on in that joint or in that muscle. And if you just take cortisone and it doesn't hurt anymore and you go back out and continue exercising, then it's very likely that you will exacerbate any injury that you have. If something is sore, you need to figure out why and not try to just cover it up. Well, Gretchen, unfortunately, we're almost out of time, so we're not going to be able to talk about the downfalls of sit-ups and other things that may be surprising to people today. But do you have any final thoughts for our listeners who may be wanting to start an exercise regimen? That it can be so easy. Don't be intimidated by the very word exercise. Think of it as just movement. If you haven't been doing a lot of moving, start by just standing up more during the day. Then go for a walk. When that feels easy, maybe try jogging. If you don't want to, then just walk a little more. The, the human body is built to move, and it, it really is possible and easy for almost all of us. And if we were to stand up more during the day, that actually has been shown in studies versus sitting to make a difference in and of itself. It does. It actually makes a, a significant difference in health. And all you need to do is just stand up a little more often. I, I'm standing up right now as I talk to you. Just build it into your day, and it makes a big difference. It even makes a difference in weight gain. So definitely stand up more often. Thanks for being on Health Watch today, Gretchen. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're talking today with New York Times columnist Gretchen Reynolds about her book, The First 20 Minutes, Surprising Science Reveals How We Can Exercise Better, Train Smarter, and Live Longer. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday Morning Radio Zine. Next up is Madness Radio.